In my announcements, you heard me mention the sharing table, Sunday sharing table. Currently, it's my understanding that this is the only location in Manhattan that serves a free hot meal to homeless and hungry people on Sundays. The census has fluctuated for this meal over the years, but I think we're at roughly 120 or 130 people now. When it started, my first year here, back in 1987, remember Lane? (laughs) It was organized by what was then called the Young Adults Fellowship, The times were so desperate, that was the height of the homeless crisis in homelessness crisis in New York City. And the needs were so severe that we had to give out tickets starting about 4 o'clock to 150 or 160 persons. We couldn't feed everyone who wanted a meal Sunday evenings, and we gave them out at the side door over here and the line would wrap all the way around our building and halfway down Park Avenue for people wanting a meal. The homeless homeless population in those days absolutely overwhelmed what few services were being offered by the city and the religious communities. But at that time, we also had a healthy cadre of older retired persons and available volunteers who served another hot meal on Mondays at lunchtime. And in their heyday, they served as many as 250 customers because they had a more fluid schedule. So each week then, we were serving in the range of 400 plus meals. And we were a much smaller outfit in those days, still scrambling to rebuild a church family out of the ashes of a near congregational collapse. But we were also establishing our identity as a community built on the fundamental mission to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves. There was something clear and obvious about providing hospitality and good food to hungry people. Over the years, there have been conversation about the usefulness of providing this meal to people who clearly had many other overwhelming needs, you, you know, housing, medical, psychological, employment, etc. And occasionally, someone came along and asked if we weren't fostering homelessness by our generosity. But The passion to provide food to hungry people without some litmus test has been a constant thread in our self-understanding of who we were at Christ Church. Of course, we've had many other larger-scale projects over the years that addressed other human needs in the city and around the world. We've done good work with a lot of hands and a great outpouring of financial generosity. But this simple work of providing a Sunday meal has maintained a fluctuating but steady stream of volunteers for more than 30 years now, continuous, serving as a useful touchstone for our life together. Now, I got to thinking about that this past week, largely because of the text you just heard Violet read. 
I did some math. And I have figured that over these three decades, we have likely served between three and 400,000 meals. Now, I don't know if that sounds like a lot to you or not. Considering the world's hungry masses, I suppose it's a mere proverbial drop in the bucket. On the other hand, as a standalone number, it seems like quite a few. It reminds me of the famous story originally conceived by Lauren Isley entitled The Star Thrower. Do you know it? Have you ever heard this? It borders on cliché, but it bears repeating here. And by the way, we often discount clichés at our peril, since clichés are clichés precisely because they identify what is true. A man was walking on the beach one day and noticed a boy who was reaching down, picking up a starfish and throwing it into the ocean. As he approached, he called out, Hello, what are you doing? The boy looked up and said, I'm throwing starfish back into the ocean. Why are you doing that? asked the man. The tide stranded them. If I don't throw them in the water before the sun comes up, they'll die, came the answer. Surely you realize that there are miles of beach and thousands of starfish. You'll never throw them all back. There are too many, and you can't possibly make a difference. The boy listened politely and then picked up another starfish. As he threw it back into the sea, he said, It made a difference for that one. Now, I'm imagining that back in 1987, if the original group of five or six young people had gotten together and said something like, let's make a plan to serve, uh, you know, three, four hundred thousand meals. There's a good chance the the first one would never have been made. Instead, they said something more like this. There are hungry people on our streets. Let's serve who we can. Let's give them a good hot meal with warm hospitality. Let's see how many will come, and maybe we can max out our space. And now, for more than 360 consecutive months, that's added up to quite a few starfish back into the sea, as it were. And like I said, as a congregation, we didn't just leave it at that, given our many significant involvements over the years, from Ghana to Colombia to Biloxi to New Orleans to the South Bronx and Harlem to schools and community centers, refugee camps, and decimated neighborhoods. As we took Jesus' instruction to heart, who told his disciples on their last night together to remember what he said to them, what their primary agenda was that they were to love as he loved. Setting that train of thought to the side for a minute, shift your attention back to that gospel lesson we heard Violet read. It began this way, 
Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place, which kind of begs the question, just what exactly is it that he heard that caused him to withdraw? And here's where it would be helpful if you had your Bible open and we could look at it. But it concerns the death of John the Baptist. And I don't know if you remember how John the Baptist died. Perhaps you remember the name Salome. She figures prominently in the story. The story is is that Herod Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa, had taken his brother Philip's wife as his own, Herodias. John the Baptist did not think this was good. And he was an active and open critic of King Agrippa. Now Agrippa, Agrippa liked John the Baptist even so, but he found him problematic, especially since his wife didn't like that he was telling dirt on her. So he had him thrown into jail. He's in custody. And one night, They're having a big party, and I imagine there was lots to drink, and Herod Agrippa asked Herodias' daughter, famous Salome, to dance for him. To which she agreed with the condition that he would grant her any wish that she asked. And Herod acquiesced, agreed to that. She danced and afterwards asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. That startling story. And Herod, having given his word, acquiesced and did that. That is the story that has just been told to Jesus. That's what he has just heard. And that's why he needs to withdraw out into the wilderness. This news probably hit him really hard. And you likely could identify with a need to withdraw for your own emotional recovery. Someone you love has come to an awful, awful end and you need to get away from everything and everyone to process your grief. Please just let me be alone for a while. But Jesus is something of a first century celebrity at this point, and though he's gone out into the wilderness, the desert, to be by himself, a great crowd learns of his withdrawal and goes along the shore to the place where he's headed. And then, rather than responding like we might, the text says, He had compassion for them and cured their sick. Not only did he not send them away or retreat further, but instead moved in among them, touching them, healing them, loving them, 
And I'm thinking maybe he did this all with a tear-streaked face from his own grief-fueled vulnerability, extending himself to others. That seems right to me, actually, because honestly, I know from my own experience that I am most deeply compassionate when connecting with someone's pain or difficulty and connecting it with my own vulnerability. Is that not true? Of course, the disciples, as our stand-ins, suggest you you should send them all away. They saw their opportunity as mealtime approached because the crowd had come into the wilderness where there wasn't a handy McDonald's, Shake Shack, or Nifty Bodega. They say this to Jesus directly. Send them off. We can't manage them and they need to eat. To which Jesus directly responds, Remember what he said. You give them something to eat. And that's when they bring what they have, some bread and fish. He blesses it. They take it and share it. And lo and behold, there is enough to feed 5,000 people and more. That's what the text says, 5,000 men and then women and children in addition. And by the way, this is the only story, other than the narrative of Jesus' death and resurrection, that's found in all four Gospels. The only one. Which suggests this story was very important for the early followers. It was at the heart of their understanding of who Jesus was and what he was about. It also served as a clear reminder of the Last Supper that evolved into what we now call the Eucharist or Holy Communion, what we'll be sharing today in a few minutes. Taking bread, blessing it in Jesus' name and memory, and sharing it among us. We each get just a little bit, but no one is to be excluded. All are welcome. On that hillside in the wilderness, there was no litmus test for a dinner ticket, no questioning of motives or backgrounds. All one required was hunger. That's it. I suppose I could do a riff on their spiritual hunger here, but the fact is their very human material need was satisfied that day. They needed food, and food was provided. They each got their dinner, and then eventually they'd find their way home. Now, I'm thinking the disciples were likely daunted by the sheer size of the assembly. And as we said, more than 5,000. If maybe six or seven persons had trudged out into the desert, they could imagine, you know, sharing begrudgingly what they had. But they thought too small. They weren't yet connecting the dots on the meaning of Jesus' compassion, how no one fell beyond the bounds of God's grace and love. No one at any time fell beyond those bounds. Paul will later write to Jesus' followers that they should all share the same mind of Christ. We might ask, well, what does that really mean? What does it mean to share the mind of Christ? And we could look then to the story of the feeding of the 5,000 as a touchstone. The friends of Jesus were empowered to participate in Christ's compassion for the world. That is the drama that is going on here. 
And by the world, I mean every individual person, persons with their unique stories and histories and tragedies and failures and everyday struggles, people who got hungry and thirsty and crabby and lonely, like all of us. And at that moment, especially when Jesus tells this story like him, desperate in his own grief because the man he loved had been beheaded and humiliated. And on that level, he was able to reach and touch people in their need. I know it sounds really simple and basic, but wildly this truth seems to escape the attention of otherwise well-meaning Christian folk that the primary agenda of Jesus' followers was simply to imitate his way in the world. That was the agenda, and it always has been. We tend to make this overly complicated because it requires what? A daunting level of selflessness and humility and generosity and compassionate regard. We'd rather spend our time parsing doctrines and dogmas about right belief where we can assert our power and privilege and righteousness over against other folks. And honestly, friends, that is a very much easier agenda. Tell me you don't find it easier to judge people rather than love them. I know that's true for me. I confess it right here and now. It's easier to judge than to love. Wow, why is that even so for Christians who say they follow after the way of Jesus? It's one of the great mysteries for the church to always grapple with. And man, oh man, that is why it is such a relief to return to our communion table where I gratefully remember the essential truth of the matter that I am loved beyond my wildest imaginings. And so are you. And so is everyone else. 